0: Hello and welcome to Gay for Horror, the show where not all the movies are gay, but I sure am. How are you? Uh, it, it is literally New Year's Eve, um, and I I, I I I'm 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 here. I <laughs> I don't drink, and I don't I don't so much like parties. So I, I'm gonna do something I really do love, which is I'm gonna talk about all the movies, all the horror movies especially that I loved in 2019. And I'm going to try to contain my excitement because I do get a little bit too much. And also, I, this is my favorite thing. So uh, I'm actually really, really happy. I did. I, I don't drink, but I do have a Coke Zero, and um and some peanut MMs. Uh, and I did I did consume a, a, a suspiciously large uh, chunk of a, a party size of uh, bagel bites. So, <laughs> so so I'm about as happy as I get uh, on a Tuesday evening. Anyway, I'm going to move into it. This is fun. I've never done a a version of this that's in a format other than a review where I do like a non-spoiler and then a spoiler review. And I had intended to, but never got to it. Um, So this is the first one, which is fun. I'm going to just move through. I picked 10 because I I, I don't. Here's here's what. Here's, Here's my theory on top 10. Bear with it. I believe in the logic of ten because I think you have to limit yourself. If you just talk about your favorite, if I just, if I just sincerely talked about my favorites and everything that I loved, we would be here forever. Um, so I believe in the logic of ten, uh, but I've I've cheated uh, and given myself three honorable mentions. But I won't I won't go further than that. I'll just this, that's it. Um, some of these I've talked about in full episodes. And, and and so I will remind you of what I thought of them but not go into in, into any great depth. Um, but my other theory about 10 is I don't just don't believe in numbers. I you know, at some point, how uh, how do I distinguish what is my number nine versus my number 10 favorite movie? Anytime I've ever tried to do numbers, they feel, they feel mostly arbitrary. They're not totally arbitrary. Um, I thought about doing numbers, but in my heart, I don't really believe in them. So I'm going to do honorable mentions and then just go through the 10 films alphabetically, which is the diplomatic way of doing this. So real quick, I have three honorable mentions, and I will, I will work through them that I want to spotlight for you. The first is one that I have talked about in a full episode, and that is a movie called ICU. Uh, It's directed by Adam Randall. It is a very uh, difficult-to-describe movie, (laughs) which I addressed in my non-spoiler review in episode five-ish. I think it was five. I think it was five. Um, So it's hard for me to tell you. By the way, these are all going to be not... They're not going to be spoilers in the sense that I'm not going to purposely reveal anything that I think would ruin the movie, but they are going to be... Tapid spoilers in the sense that I will discuss the movies and possibly say things like, for example, pick a scene that I love that I don't think is giving away essential plot information. So if you want to know nothing about the movies, uh, you might skip the ones you still want to see. Or if you want, if you're okay with knowing a little bit, bear with me as we do this. Uh, but I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna like talk about the Sixth Sense and tell you that Bruce Willis is dead the whole time. With no consideration. <laughs> anyway, so I see, and I'm, I'm saying this because I see is just really hard to describe otherwise. Um, so I'm not going to tell you what it is, but I'm going to tell you that what it is is interesting, uh, that there is an element of supernatural question, that it's kind of a ghost story, but maybe kind of not a ghost story, and that there is an element of kind of uh pursuit or there is a creepy element of a stranger who might be a threat to you, to one, to the characters, whomever. (laughs) Uh, It's really great. Um, Helen Hunt is in it. Uh, Oscar winner Helen Hunt. Uh, John Tenney is in it. Uh, There's a really great uh, breakout performance, I think, or maybe this is not his breakout performance. It is to me, Um, but actually Owen Teague, who's incredible in a role that I will not disclose the nature of. also, fun fact: there is a character in the movie. I I did when I did my full review, and I'm not going to spend too much time because I don't want to give away the nature of it. But there is a there is a a figure, and it's pictured on the poster. If you see the poster to the movie, uh, the poster is what looks just sort of like a, a a spooky frog face. There is a figure that has a sort of spooky frog face it's in the po- it's on the poster. So I think I can disclose that it's in the movie reasonably. Um, anyway in my review I really struggled to, to name that character and so I referred to him as the frogman um, and I actually heard I heard from Matt Waldeck who is uh, a producer of the movie um, who was very lovely and sent me some messages um, and 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 that's very nice of him um, I uh, have heard from a few people who who have worked on movies that I've talked about and I think it's really sweet that anyone actually cares but I've heard lovely things no one's ever messaged me and said um, You ruined my movie. You're terrible. Everyone's always said nice things, which is good. Uh, But he informed me, and I want to reiterate this to you, because the name of a villain in a horror movie is kind of an essential part of the identity of that horror movie. Like, if you're going to cosplay, you need to know who you are. So the frog figure, I just want to give the from from Matt Waldick, the producer. I want to give the official the official declaration. If you're going to cosplay, uh, or if you just want to know on the internet, um, or if you're going to talk about the movie, or if you want to campaign for a sequel, uh, it's not the frogman. It's the Frogger. So take that with you and do do whatever you will with it. But so anyway, I see You it's a great movie. It has a number of different interlocking structures and different interlocking genres um and there is a creepy element of a strange of a stranger and it's excellent it's it's surprising it evolves in interesting ways the way in which it evolves connects character and plot and genre and it doesn't just shift um randomly or without a purpose, but rather the ways that it shifts and the ways that the plot unfolds make seismic differences in terms of our relationship to characters and also our experience with the movie itself. So it's great. I don't think a lot of people saw it. I I have a lot of movies on this list that I don't think a lot of people saw and I'm very excited about that. So if you haven't seen, please go see I See You. Uh, That's my first honorable mention. I have to talk faster. (laughs) (laughs) Or less, because I want this to not be so long, and I am, you know, I'm not good at that. Okay, second honorable mention is a movie called Little Joe. I don't think anyone has seen this movie either, or I don't think many people have seen this movie. Uh, And I have not talked about this in any way, so I'm excited to, to pass this on. I just saw this movie on a digital rental. It is, I think, maybe marginally available in theaters, but it seems like it's mostly a digital release. Uh, This is a movie uh, directed by Jessica Hausner. And it is is a movie unlike any other movie on this list. Which is why I wanted to have it on here. It is... uh, Also, I think you'll... I mean, if you listen through and hear the list that I've made, you'll pick up on certain... I'll probably repeat myself on a few of them. There are some things that I like. um, So those things tend to come to the forefront. This one is really not... So much the things that I like, in in the sense of it's not my taste, which is to say that it's it it, it is not a like to many movies on this list. Um, it's just it's so unusual to me, but I really gravitated toward it. Um, and so some of the things that distinguishes it. So this is a movie. The pitch of it is the it's a uh, a woman who's a mother and a scientist. Uh, who is working on a project of a plant that is being bred to uh, release chemicals that make people happy and play with people's internal brain chemistry and the idea is that if you keep this flower in your home it will make it will make you it will interact with your brain chemistry and make you happy. Uh, which seems like a great thing at first, uh, but it also presents certain terrible, uh, you know, Mary Shelley Frankenstein-ish dangers <laughs> with science. Uh, and so she brings a prototype home and notices that it affects her the behavior of her young son. And also the behavior of the people working in this facility where she is also working starts to noticeably shift. It is a very atmospheric, bordering on kind of passive horror movie in the sense that it's not a... It's not a slasher. It's not... There's not a scary person. There's no f- frogger. There's, there's nothing that you're running from in the strictest sense. There's just... The pervasive sort of ambient sense of danger and dread and it's something that is just in the air and around you it has you know kind of a body snatchers vibe i think that's a strong comparison to make invasion of the body snatchers pick one um <laughs> there have been so many um <laughs> you know, 50s 70s uh, early 2000s thousands, whatever uh but in very much an invasion of the body snatchers but but also just it's a, even a bit less than that because even in that movie, there's just the sense of you're running from something. In this movie, because the nature of the threat is pleasing, it's really about the sort of the horror of acquiescence and and it, and and, and um, compliance, and that is a really interesting way to reconstruct uh, our sense of what's scary. Uh, often in a horror movie, what's scary is the thing that's outside the norm that's like the thing that is not within you know so in the icu say it's you know there's a house and a family and those are the people we think are operating in a norm that's comfortable and then something comes and interrupts that in this movie the the norm is the danger the sort of the, the sort of conceding to the norm is the danger and i don't want to give away all the movie but that's just a sort of thematic quality in the movie that I, I just love. Ben Whishaw is in the movie. It's when Ben Whishaw, from many things, including a very English scandal or, it's a very British scandal. I think it's a very English scandal. Uh, in which he's quite good. Uh, if you haven't seen that, it's a lovely sort of queer uh, media piece, which you can, I don't know where, it aired on American television somewhere, but I don't own television, so I just kind of watch things on the internet. Um, <laughs> but that's really good. But he's good in this. Um, anyway, it's a great movie, and I don't think hardly anyone's seen it, so uh, if you can, again, uh, honorable mention number two is Little Joe. Okay, uh, number three is one that I just saw. This is honorable mention number three I just saw, like, a week ago? No, not, less than a week. Maybe less than a week. It's, it's a movie called Sweetheart. It's directed by J.D. Dillard, who had a debut feature called Slight. Um, Which was distributed by Blumhouse, but not the sort of main Blumhouse, the Blumhouse tilt uh, imprint, which is, I think, meant for genre films that are not technically horror movies, I think is how I understand that. If that's not true, then sorry. (laughs) Uh, But uh, that movie was really interesting, and then he sort of came back and made this movie, which is a more traditional horror movie. Uh, it's called Sweetheart. It stars uh, Kiersey Clemens, who is a great young actress. Uh, she has a great part in a movie called Hearts Beat Loud, which is a very small um, indie drama about a father and a daughter. Her father's played by Nick Offerman, and they like make a band together. It's so sweet. I saw it at a film festival a, a while ago. Uh, anyway, she's great in this. She's the lead. It's practically a one-woman movie. Uh, she... The premise is that Kirsty Clemens is stranded on an island. She washes up on a beach from some sort of shipwreck or ship incident and she's just stuck on this island and while she's on the island she finds that there's a scary spooky thing and uh, and so she has to find shelter or make shelter and protect herself from whatever is in whatever's on the island. That seems to come out at night, which, as a basic premise, is always scary. <laughs> um, it's just an incre- its just a, it's an incredibly simple. Uh, this one is also from Blumhouse, by the way. Uh, it's an incredibly simple structure. Uh, there's a character that we like and care about, and there is a monster that wants to hurt her. Uh, And we kind of root for her through her endeavors. Um, But it's just, it's exceptionally good at some very minimalistic classic horror. So just a relatively early scene to pick out. Um, There's just a great moment of, you know, basically, and this is almost a recurring scene in a sense, but there's her at night, you know, sleep, trying to sleep alone on an island where there's a monster. Uh, And the movie just has an incredibly detailed way of representing a a dark forest such that both the sound design and the production design emphasize a sense of possibility of threat. So the, you know, the sounds of something breaking, like a, a stick snapping in the distance, the sounds of wind, the sounds of, of ruffling trees, um, all of these things we're, we're sort of watching as her into the darkness and, and just staring out to try and decide if there's something there or if you can drift off to sleep. Um, it feels incredibly I don't know if interactive is the right word, but it it feels, it's an incredibly relatable moment of feeling uncomfortable. Um, If anyone's ever had that, like, which I've had for sure, if you wake up kind of half awake in the middle of the night, and you're just sort of like looking at the walls, and the walls look strange, even though they're the walls in your own home, um, when you're half asleep, everything is weird, and sometimes you just wake up and you have this very strange like dream-like impression that something is there or that the you know the the coat on their chair is a something and it just there's this sleep is a scary addition to any kind of uncertainty Uh, but then also so there's all these you know dark trees and like jet black trees and maybe it's a branch or maybe it's a leg moving and so uh, it's just really it's really good at a, a very subtle and very sparse horror plot um, there's also, there, there are more de- elements that develop and her character gets developed in ways that I think are totally satisfying and really interesting. Um, it's a very kind of lean 75 or 80 minute movie. It reminds me in terms of its efficiency of like a classic like Val Luton produced horror movies from the 40s. It's just, it has incredibly efficient, scary scenes. It has a clear protagonist who we're invested in and it has a problem which is addressed throughout the course of the movie, uh, and it doesn't linger past that initial. It doesn't. It doesn't really. It doesn't. You know, uh, sort of again to 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 build back to ICU. Which I don't know why I keep doing. But that's a movie that has sort of an uh, sort of evolving structure. This is a movie that just has a very deliberate specific crisis, and the crisis is what we are focused on. So it's very. Cla- it's just. It's just. It's just. Uh, It's just really good at what it is, and what it is is very entertaining. So those are the three honorable mentions. Uh, (laughs) But they're all really great, and I wish that there were more numbers in 1 through 10, because they all sort of could have been in top 10. They're just not because of the wonderful excess of, of possibilities. But those are movies I really recommend. I See You, Little Joe, and Sweetheart. Okay, so movie number one on the alphabetical list of top ten is a movie called Braid. Uh, This is another movie I'm really, really happy to spotlight because I don't think enough people have seen it. Uh, It's directed by Mitzi Perrone, and it is, I believe, a debut feature. Um... This is a, a, a wild movie that I watched, again, this is also a digital rental, it was not widely available in theaters. Um, I watched through on a rental, and then got to the end, and thought, huh. Um, and I loved it, I really, really loved it by the end, and yet I was really just compelled by it in a way that was a mix of joy and confusion, and I just re-watched it through a second time, like, in my seat at that moment. There's actually a couple of movies on this list that uh, a lot of them were uh, accessed by me through rental, partially because that is the way that I think innovative horror is most widely available, especially to someone living in the Midwest. Um, but, uh, you know, also the digital aspect has been helpful because I've, I you know, made my rental and I... Um, a couple of these I just, I watched them and I love them and I just pushed play again. And if I push play again and I watch the whole thing through a second time, that probably means I really liked it. So all of those movies that were immediate rewatch movies are pretty much on this list. Braid, so here's, here's a con, here's an idea, here's a pitch for Braid, um, if you've not heard of it. This is, um, I have lovingly called it a cross between The Virgin Suicides and that Czech New Wave movie, Daisies, uh, which I don't know if those references play for everyone, but if you know those references, I feel like that is, like that plus a sort of twist of violence, I think is, is pretty accurate. This is, there's a sense of malaise and kind of uh, opulence and um, uh, just just uh, living this sort of strange, maybe trapped, but very beautiful life mixed in with a very surreal, filmically experimental style and also a touch of of danger. It's really good. It, it, it one thing I like a lot and that will come up possibly as I go through these movies, I am a sucker for um visually interesting movies. You know, even just a vi- like one or two very memorable frames where it's like I at the end of a whole year I can remember what this moment looks like in this one movie because it's just stuck with me the whole time and if if something like that lives in my brain that really for me means everything for other people it doesn't for some people looking memorable or exciting is not a huge um it's not a huge d- distinction some of the reviews for this movie said shit that i think is stupid like um one review which i thought was incredibly condescending said that the filmmaker was uh, so interested in style that she should only work in music videos or advertisement. Which I don't even want to get into, but I don't understand that kind of a comment. This is an incredibly beautiful movie, and there are moments in this movie that I think are unforgettable to me personally. Uh, and one of them is, of course, that the movie is it's called Braid, and there's a really memorable shot which is available in the press materials um, of the actresses with long hair braids sort of tied together and an interconnected sort of giant hair braid that binds their bodies together. And it's incredibly memorable. Um, There are a couple of others I won't go into detail about, but I have a few visual references for this movie that I have kept with me for the whole year. So... And to act like style is not a feature of filmmaking or that an excess of style is not a celebrated aspect of a lot of filmmakers' work is odd to me, personally. Um, Anyway, regardless, this movie is really memorable. It's really... It's incredibly unique for me this year. Um, The plot, again... I would give this the preemptive uh, just disclosure that I don't think it is a very plot based movie. So if that is also a thing that you covet, this may not be for you. Um, it is more of an emotion driven image driven movie, which is a totally valid way of making films, which has a very long history. It's just a sort of different approach. Uh, there is a plot. The basic plot here is that these two, uh, women, uh, played by Sarah Hay and Imogen Waterhouse, appear to be fleeing the police. Um, and they take a train, and they're trying to find a place to hide, and they contact an old friend who is played by Madeline Brewer, who, if you like horror movies, you will probably know from the movie Cam, uh, which was uh, she, in which she was excellent last year. She's also in... Hustlers, Lorraine Scafarga's Hustlers this past year in a small role. Um, she's great. She's <laughs> she's great in everything, and she is especially great here. She has a character who is not entirely uh, in uh, grounded in reality. Um, so the so the, the the hiccup is they get to go to this opulent palatial estate where their friend played by Madeline Brewer lives. The only problem is that she inherited it um, and she lives there alone and she, for some reason, is still stuck playing a game of doctor, which they started playing when they were kids. And so in order to stay in this house and hide from the police, her two friends have to continue to play doctor with her. And it is a game of Doctor which in horror movie fashion, is sometimes a little bit unnecessarily violent. And so there is an element of danger in this game and this entanglement with the three women. There's also a really queer element to this movie. Um, one is, So so. there's uh, there's a Doctor. One of them is playing Doctor, one of them is playing Child, and one of them is playing uh, Mother. But the actress, Imogen <laughs> Waterhouse, who has to play... Doctor is playing a man doctor. So and there's like, there's, and there's also an in, intimation of a potential sexual attraction between mother and doctor. And it's, it's wonderful. Like scenes play out in this movie that are so wonderful, wonderfully strange and beautiful. And there is this incredible thread of emotionality through it where uh, the movie is about the connections between these characters. It is about the, the uh, the ways in which our will H reality is, is potentially able to be altered or play acted um, there are great moments which are interesting visually like there's um uh, there's a couple of moments and this is where like the daisies comparison comes in for me but there's a couple moments where there's like black and white film stock with like neon hues or like mixes of of like neon color and like absence of color there's there's it's There are a lot of visual moments that play with the sort of basic fundamental composition of the film or the photography, which is not the most common in a horror movie. So uh, there's a lot going on here. I think it is has a lot of visceral, scary moments. I think it has a great use of imagery, and it is something that stands out to me and that I remember from a couple... A while, it came out a while ago. I've seen this movie... I watched it twice, maybe a third time, earlier this year. Uh, but to me, there was just never a point all year where it wasn't going to be on a top 10 list because it's one of the most memorable horror movies I've seen. Uh, certainly this year, but, but maybe uh, in even greater still. So, if you haven't, you must see Mitzi Perone's Braid. Okay, movie number two on the alphabetical list is another feature debut, which is exciting, um, and this one is called Headcount. I this is by the way also another movie I watched and then immediately re-watched on a digital rental, so, and in this in this case all the reason more why to do it. Uh, so here's 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 what if you've not seen Headcount. The premise here I love so much i this is like the kind of horror movie that is made for me particularly and only me and you no one else uh no I'm checking uh, but okay, so the premise is two brothers who are slightly estranged and are meet up and are having supposedly a weekend together, and one of the brothers. Meets this group of friends who are all hanging out together, and I th- if I recall, has like an attraction to one of the women in the group or some sort of something. And his brother encourages him, you know, to go with them and hang out with them at their party. What happens then is there is a recitation of like an internet, uh, just scary story which is some sort of an incantation and a demon arises. But here's what, and here's where I love this movie. Um, the way that the demon manifests is that it basically looks like someone in in the room, which is why the movie is called Headcount. So there's... A group of too many people. I haven't named any of the actors because there's just, there's like, there's, there's an ensemble of a lot. They're all wonderful. But there's an ensemble of actors. And this is also why I had to watch the movie twice and why it was so fun to watch twice and why I would watch it again in a heartbeat. Um, but there's this ensemble of actors and basically the demon, or the whatever it is, uh, appears to the group in the the form of one of the ensemble. Uh, so, so you may have heard me mention this with other uh, reviews, where I, I'm really the, the the scare in the movie that I'm most excited about is not the jump scare or the like, the thi- the thing that emerges it, it, creepily. The scare that really <laughs> really unnerves me is the like, there's just someone in the room who shouldn't be there. My fear is is not is less about the like oh it's a monster. It, it, it's more, it's just that there's just, you know, my biggest fear is, like, I would just come home and there would just be someone in my house, and they wouldn't be scary or be scared of me, they would just be there, and <laughs> the, like the, that would just break my brain, like that would be, so, I don't even, what, what, what do you, what, do you, do, what do you if it's a monster, at least you're like, oh, it's a monster, I'll fight it. What if it what if it's just a person who's just there? Like, there's something about the, that, that that really gets me, and in this movie there are just scenes where the it is not it is not addressed in the fr- it's not addressed in the scene but there's just an extra person and you just don't notice the first time you watch the movie that the extra person is there but when you rewatch the movie you start to realize that person at that table is also in the living room or that person who's in the back of the frame is also in another right, in another part of the house and because it's a big ensemble you just don't notice it right away because you don't... When you have a big ensemble, it's hard to learn all the faces, and especially when they're not an ensemble of recognizable actors. Um, And it's a great, great tool here because you just... You don't always realize what you're looking at when you're looking at it. And for me, like, irrefutably, this has some of my favorite scares in any movie all year. There is one that I won't totally break down for you, but there is a really uh, important, I think, pivotal... I imagine on set they knew that this was this was an important part of the movie. Uh, there's a scene that involves a game of Never Have I Ever, and it is so well done. It's probably my favorite scare in any movie all year. It's good. It's subtle. It pays off. It pays off more when you watch it again and again it doesn't stop paying off it's so good uh and if you like that feeling in a horror movie that something is wrong but maybe you don't even know it's what's wrong the first time you watch through if if that's an appealing aspect to you this movie is a home run because when you re-watch it there's all these other things where you're just like oh shit that now that I've put all the names and faces together, that guy—that's wrong. That shouldn't be there, uh, and that kind of subtlety is so rare, uh, and I love it. You know, I've said it before my favorite horror movie is Jack Clayton's *The Innocents*, which is a classy, old-fashioned haunted house movie based on *The Turn of the Screw* by Henry James. Uh, and there's like three scares, but they're so good. Um, so I love this. I love subtle horror movies. I will wait. I will wait ninety minutes for a payoff on a scare, <laughs> and I will be. I will be grateful for it. This one is not like that. It's not slow moving. It's just that some of the scares, you know, there's plenty of scares that are announce themselves, but there's a lot of very subtle, almost subliminal moments of surreal aspects that you will pick up on if you watch and rewatch it. Uh, and that makes this movie special. I, I, I don't know of a movie quite like that on this list. And it's just so fun, so fun to re-watch. Really excellent, excellent. Um, again, not a movie a lot of people have seen, but I do, if you're in the U.S., it is streaming on Netflix, so you can watch it on uh, Netflix. And I highly recommend that you do. And again, it's El Callahan's Headcount. This next one is just a total doozy, and I just, I can't possibly do justice to it in a short time frame. Uh, But it's In Fabric, uh, directed by Peter Strickland, which, if you don't know Peter Strickland, he's made, um, this is his third feature. His first was Barbarian Sound Studio, which if you're a fan of horror, I highly recommend. It is... Uh, it is, it's it's ju- it's an incredibly designed movie about a sound engineer working on an Italian giallo film. And it's just this sort of creepy movie of uh, this group of people sort of stabbing a cauliflower and making the crunch noises for a witch movie. <laughs> uh, and it has comic elements, it has creepy elements, it has so much in it. His second movie is called The Duke of Burgundy, which is more of an erotic thriller that's also quite surreal and, and has um, some dark elements. And then this is his third. Um, In Fabric is not a straightforward horror movie. It, it is uh, it is like his other movies, a kind of a blend of genres. Uh, the basic premise, again, although I would concede this is not a strongly plot-driven movie, uh, the basic premise is that there is a beautiful red dress at a department store that when worn, uh, seems to curse the wearer. And uh <laughs> uh it's it is it is scary. There are a couple of really unnerving scenes that make me tense. There's one involving a washing machine that is just I I I struggle to get through it. I had to sort of uh clench my eyes. Um but I would say even more so, the appeal of the movie is that it's kind of mesmeric and just unusual, and it is a dark comedy about uh, consumerism. You know, it's it's this it's the department store as the coven or of witches or the cult. It's the department store that sort of like mesmerizes you in on, in its spell, and, and so the department store where the movie takes place. Uh, it's just, it's like, it's it's so unreal. It's this like hyper, uh, hyper saturated color, full of this staff w- that speak in this sort of like quasi capitalist riddles that are just <laughs> about consumption and joy. Um, you don't really, it's it's all very particular. There's a particular look. There's a particular speech pattern. There's a particular tone that is distinct to this movie. Um, there are incredibly funny scenes, um, in, uh, Marianne, um, uh, Jean-Baptiste, who's the lead actress, uh, works at a, uh, a bank, and she has these incredibly funny encounters with these, like, HR representatives who are counseling her about her... Her job status and how to conduct herself and uh, questioning her use of the bathroom, etc. And it's this it's this very it's an uncanny, funny, weird exploration of the strangeness of employment and work and money as a system that we all have to contend with. There's also these like uh, she goes on uh, blind dates and uh, the series of blind dates that she has are so sad and darkly funny. Uh, This is a really funny horror comedy movie uh, that I love. It is so, so, so its own thing. Um, of all the, you know, of all the things on this list, it's, it's so distinctly what it is. Uh, and it's, it's not a common combination of things. Um, it reminds me a bit that the film, that, uh, the only kind of comparison I could make is, last year I really loved uh, Boots Riley's Sorry to Bother You, which was a sort of sci-fi comedy, uh, you know, uh, satire of of capitalism, and this movie is kind of like a bit in that vein in the sense that it, it's sort of a horror, comedy satire of of capitalism also, and and, and I, those are like the that's like the best way I can frame that that the mix of things because it's not as though the plot doesn't matter but the plot is tethered to so much of the commentary and the satire that it is mostly driven by I think the fun of it, the energy of it, the humor of it, and the atmosphere of it, the tense atmosphere of it, which is sincere, uh, but it is ultimately not a, it's not about like killing the monster the monster is almost like incidental or the dress is almost incidental to the system that produces the dress. Which makes sense given what its aims and, and, and imperatives are. Um, I don't know that I have all that much more to say about it. There is a sort of unusual combination of stories here because Marion Jean Baptiste does lead most of the movie, but the movie does have other protagonists. Um, and some people don't like the, the sort of shifts in the protagonists that happen. And I don't mind it, again, because I don't think this is a plot-driven movie. I think this is a... Uh, it's a, a satire and commentary-driven movie with atmosphere and, and, and tenseness built in with the sort of horror elements. Um, so I really like it. I like the way... The places it goes. I don't want to give away all the places it goes, but it is... Again, not a plot-driven movie, but an idea-driven movie, and an an, an atmospherically driven movie, uh, and I you know I could watch the actresses who play the coven <laughs> or the cult or whatever we're calling them. Um, Just their physicality, the way they um, they have this sort of motion with their hands that they just sort of lure people in. I could watch that forever. Um, I would. I want every smart drag queen to be one of those witches for Halloween. Um, It's uh, the the speech patterns. I can't quote any of them because they're so specific and hard to calibrate. But I could listen to someone talk like that forever. So there's just a lot about this movie that I love, and I don't have a ton of of commentary on it except to say that I think it's really effective. It's really great. It's really distinct. It's really special. So it's also a movie that I think other people have talked about quite a bit. So I'm going to leave this one as what it is. Uh, but if you haven't seen it, you really should watch uh, Peter Strickland's In Fabric. The next movie on this list I talked about extensively in an episode that... Well, in the the previous episode, so if you've not heard that one, you can go back and listen to it. But it's Jennifer Reader's Knives and Skin. I did uh, debate a bit about whether to include this on a list of horror movies because I don't, first and foremost, think of this as a horror movie. It is... It's a mystical noir, neo-noir movie. It has murder in it, and it has sort of supernatural or surreal elements in it. Uh, but I'm including it because I love it so much, and ultimately I feel like it would be a mistake not to talk about it or to just spotlight it again. Uh, and also because I, it just has been... I think pretty collectively funneled into the horror media community. Other people have put it on their favorite horror films of 2019 list. It's been covered by a lot of horror outlets. Um, horror is an interesting space because it is so it is such a calling something horror gives it so much opportunity to exist and, and be seen and be received. Uh, because there's such an audience for horror, and so lots of films sort of dance in the area of horror and 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 channel themselves into those media uh, arenas, which I think is great. I mean, I'm all for a in, in totally intersectional, widely considered uh, connection between horror and other genre films and. Uh, I'm all for talking about more things rather than less things or leaving things out because of technicalities. Um, But I just want to add, so the only thing I'll add is that this movie is so special to me, and I talked about why last time, so I won't go into it, but it has some of my favorite scenes of any movie I've seen this year. It is... um, I would say it's one of my ten favorite horror movies um, because... I love it and would put it on any list of favorites. Uh, but also, I would just say too you know my only my only hesitation to call it a horror movie is not that it would not belong, but rather that it might limit what people expect from it. Don't watch this movie and expect a straightforward horror movie. This is a it is a it is a movie about the painful realities of murder. It represents that in somewhat magical ways. It goes in so many directions. there are musical numbers. Um, so if you watch it, just know it's not a straightforward horror movie, but it is an excellent movie. And it's uh, Jennifer Reader's *Nice and Skin. So I've gone on record being totally anti-trailer. I don't watch movie trailers. It's my current preference to know basically nothing about a movie before I see it. And almost every time I am so grateful that I made that choice. And I could talk about some reasons why later in this episode some, some films that i felt very happy i didn't see the trailer cuz when i watched the trailer back having seen the movie i just thought oh i would have ne- i never wanted to know what it was going to go all those places or that i was, i didn't want to have all those images ruined for me so i'm almost always on the team of no trailer is better you know go in and just experience the movie and you know i mean at the very least a good trailer spoils the first act and a whole, a whole 30 minutes or 40 minutes of the movie can be new information to you if you just don't watch the trailer. This next movie is one of the rare cases where... And I don't know if necessarily the trailer would have helped, because I'm not sure this is in the trailer. But I had no idea what it was about, and I felt very... Um, I went in thinking, okay, I'm going to go watch this because I think it might be a good movie, or because I like the filmmaker. Uh... But if someone had, t- you know, this is this is this is the kind of thing I hope or aspire to do for other people, which is to sort of turn them around and say, "Oh no, no, no! I know that the commercial says this, but like, really, you want to see this because?" And 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 that is sort of the benefit, especially of having a queer perspective on these things or getting a queer perspective on these things, because sometimes you need someone to break down <laughs> what 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 is really important. <laughs> what are the really important things about the movie that the trailer isn't telling you? Um, uh, Or things that other people don't care about as much, but queer people covet sort of extraordinarily. Um, My point is, I went to see The Lighthouse because it was from the director of The Witch, and, you know, it looked beautiful. I I saw still photos. I knew it it was... uh, I knew the cinematography was going to be beautiful. If anyone had just said to me, The Lighthouse is a, like pinky folk tale about a lightkeeper, um, like a homoerotic attraction between lightkeepers, played by Robert Pattinson and Willem Dafoe. I, if anyone had told me that, like, I would have went into the movie and sat at the front row with so much enthusiasm. And instead I went in really neutral, just kind of like, okay, this is their, okay, so they're they're at the White House. Oh, okay, there's there's um there's there's the sea. Okay, there's a bird, okay. I, I didn't I didn't I didn't I didn't know there was gonna be so much Robert Pattinson half naked uh, rubbing on things. If if only this had been communicated, I didn't know he was gonna nuzzle Willem Dafoe in the nose. Like I didn't if I had known I would have walked into this movie with a whole different view. And I feel like everyone has just been lying to me about what no one has told. No one ever just said to me, you have to go see this. It's like a kinky homoerotic sea captain tale. Like, you have to go see it. Um. So, <laughs> so I'm telling you, if you didn't see The Lighthouse because you thought, I don't care about that black and white fish movie. I'm telling you, and you know, you shouldn't just, I don't care. It doesn't spoil the movie. You just need to, You need to know where, you need to know a little bit about where it's going in this case to really commit... I'm telling you, this is a an unusual, scary, sexy movie about fish people, and uh, and two dudes in a lighthouse. Maybe fucking, maybe not fucking, but certainly uh, the, the crude animosity and t- sexual tension between two old dudes in a lighthouse. It's awesome. <laughs> the lighthouse, the light, like the light This is. I feel like this is the movie that no one's being honest about in 2019. I think, I hope some queer media has covered this, but, like, I feel like everyone's like, oh, yes, The Lighthouse. It's a very exciting, beautiful movie full of cinematography. It's like, The Lighthouse is softcore gay porn, and it's beautiful. It is, it is probably, it is, it is the Call Me By Your Name of 2019. It's the sexy will they, won't they in, you know, in The Lighthouse movie. Um, Robert Pattinson looks gorgeous, and all every like he looks He looks gorgeous as the fucking birds are fucking pecking at his face. It's so. It's so. This movie. <laughs> Go see the fucking lighthouse. Why? Why is no one, Why? Why is this not? This is like a. This is like a movie that no one's being honest about. I think because they're afraid that like Nana won't go, but Nana's not gonna go anyway. or she's certainly not gonna be happy either way. So let, let let Nana be. This is a really interesting, fun, queer movie, and Robert Eggers is um, amazing. It is beautiful. There is beautiful cinematography. It's not. That's not bullshit. But like. It's just a way more interesting movie than we ever thought it was. And, you know, The Witch was a really beautiful feminist horror movie that was kind of like, fuck you, I'm a witch, I'm going to make a deal with the devil. And this one is a really sexy queer horror movie that's like, you know, fuck you, I'm the lighthouse keeper, I'll eat everyone's bones and then fucking send up the the light to the ships at sea. There's there's just... think this <laughs> is awesome. Um, <laughs> like, this is, these are two really smart, well-made, like, tactically well-made movies that have really great, just re- really great character arcs, but also just, like, really defiant, kind of, very queer-friendly uh, and, and feminist character arcs that are, that are like, awesome, and they're, and they're, the movies don't, they don't come across, like, you don't, they start off and you just feel like, oh, this is, like, a, this is a classy movie about period costumes, this is a... This is going to be something. And then by the end, you're like, oh my god. It's like, it—it it just, it it goes, it goes, it really goes. Yeah, so go see The Lighthouse. It's really good. <laughs> I'm going to just quickly uh, breeze through the next two movies on the list. I want to name them because I love them. Uh, but... <laughs> They're not. Uh, they're not something to talk about more because I talked about them extensively, uh, and that would be Midsummer Ari Aster's Midsummer, which is a just beautiful, uh, picturesque, occult uh, nightmare of a movie uh, that I talked about in the very, very, very first episode. And you can listen to me talk about it for like a solid hour, and go listen to that. Um, and the next one is Ready or Not, which is. Funny, smart movie, very much an eat-the-rich horror comedy. If you liked Parasite or movies like that, um, Ready or Not is that in spades. And even if you didn't like those movies, Ready or Not is still something different you might also like. And that's directed by Matt Bettinelli-Open and Tyler Gillette. Also, Aunt Helene from Ready or Not is still the, the icon of my my sneering disgust. <laughs> Anne Helene is wins horror icon of 2019 in my heart. Those are two great movies and there's full episodes on both of those movies, and you can listen to the episodes. I talked about them so much. Okay, moving on to the next movie that I have not spoken about and that I would like to talk about at greater length. Um, this next one is so good. I don't I, I don't want to go overboard, but like the next one is Tigers are Not Afraid by Issa Lopez. This fucking movie, yeah. <laughs> you guys, this movie has everything. No, uh, this, I love ghost stories, right? I, I think I've said this a million times. Um, I love ghost stories. Ghost stories are my favorite. I love, you know, the, the, the I love what ghost stories do because ghost stories are always about the things that we've lost and the things that haunt us. And that is always engaging in a character sense. And I'm here for the, the character sense. Like, I'm, I'm here because I want to know about the characters. And and, and the ghosts allow me to, to know about the characters in a way that still lets me get suspense and scares and really interesting imagery. Tigers Are Not Afraid, I will just go on record saying, is the best ghost movie of the year of many years. It is... It, the thing that I said after I saw it that I still wholeheartedly believe is it really, for, as someone who watches so many ghost movies, it it just, it reminded me why I love ghost stories. It reminded me of what they can do. Because uh, sometimes you forget, sometimes you just think, okay, right, there's a ghost, it's like a scary lady and she's following them, right, 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 right. This movie, so if you don't know anything about the movie, uh, it is a Mexican horror movie. It was distributed in the U.S. through Shutter, so if you have a Shutter sub- subscription, you can watch it for free or with your the price of your subscription. Uh, or I think you can also rent it or buy it digitally. Uh, this is a movie about children um, in Mexico who are uh, who are the victims of gang violence fueled by drug trade. Uh, and. It is an incredibly grim world, you know, in its reality. The, the world that these characters inhabit is already difficult and scary. And the movie uses the supernatural as an extension of that danger. It makes the danger of the everyday magical. It makes it visually interesting. It represents it with a flourish that gives it something extra or other that just really makes the scope of the trauma that the movie addresses that much bigger. Because it's not just what it is in reality, it's that plus this incredible, just visually imaginative expression of that. Um, and there's a moment that I won't spoil the nature of it. But there is an appearance of a ghost in an emotional, visceral connection that really is the climax of the movie. Uh, one of the characters has to confront a ghost that is of importance to them. And... When I saw this scene, I just about screamed in my chair. Like, it was so... And you just you're just reminded like, you're just reminded that of what a movie like this can be, and that everyone's been doing it wrong. Like everyone else, <laughs> everyone else has been doing it wrong because it's not this. Um, this is like the 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 facing the ghost in the movie is facing s- such tr- traumatic reality. Um, and it's not exploitative it's it's not it's not modeling it's like it's ju- it's so vivid and visceral it is and emotionally impactful like it is the mo- it does the most with ghosts as a as a metaphor for what we've lost and what haunts our lives um and i don't want to spoil anything so just know if you are interested or if you like ghost stories i'm telling you this is the best one this is the like this is what to see this is a movie about the potentials of horror to go above and beyond being imaginative or you know visually interesting or fun or playful this is like horror as a device to expand and develop the scope of understanding and representation for truly traumatic encounters. And it's an incredibly beautiful movie, and you really have to see it. It's Tigers Are Not Afraid, directed by Issa Lopez. Okay, so the next movie is Us. And this is also a movie that a lot of people have talked about, and I, I so I struggle to say anything different. Um, so what I want to do... Because I imagine everyone's seen it, or most people have seen it. If you haven't, Google it. You'll you. Know, you don't need me to tell you. Uh, this is Jordan Peele's *Us*. It's the follow-up to *Get Out*. It's impeccable. Um, I want to talk about a very specific thing that really struck me about this movie, and this is I'm gonna do. I'm gonna do full spoilers on *Us* just because. Again, I feel like everyone's seen it. Um, and if you haven't, you can like skip ahead, there's one more movie after this. Uh, I asked this movie that I saw twice consecutively, two nights in a row. I did not, it was not a digital rental, it was a theatrical exhibition. I went on my birthday in 2019, uh, on Thursday, the premiere night of Us, and watched it and was obsessed with it and loved it, and then was talking about it and thinking about it all night and all day, and then went the following night back to the theater to see us again because, because I so I so was fascinated by it and part of the appeal of the movie for me is that I I am still fascinated by it. I know that some people feel that because it is a because in terms of plot it is not the it you know it is not the most logical plot movie nor is it impervious to plot holes or if you think about it very um Literally, but I don't care, and that—that's not really, again, if you've if you've gathered this across <laughs> across all the movies I've talked about, that's not really what I'm in in it for. I'm in it for the imagery, the the feelings, the the combinations of tones, and the 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 ability to create something that looks and feels special. Um. But but I do have a kind of caveat where I'm interested in something about the plot because of what it suggests or makes possible to me in terms of feelings and, and ideas. Uh, so a big thread in this movie is that, um, and again, this is, like, this is spoilers, so if you don't want spoilers, it's just letting second notice. Skip. One of the big threads in this movie is just the that, uh, that the tethered and the surface families uh, are ultimately not you know they're ultimately not what they seem or who they are meaning of course that we if we take the film at face value and we look at the ending of the movie as the, you know red who is the tethered version of lupitiniango is ultimately originally from the the above ground family but she's been forced into the underground uh that means that you know the Lupin Yango that we've met the whole movie obviously is is was already one of the tethered, and is is not who we think she is, uh, but also that you know all of her children are f- descended from a person who was one of the tethered, and so the narrative of us versus them or we are we are real and they are not, uh, which becomes an incredible allegory for so many kinds of othering. Is is. Uh, it's 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 wounded. It's, it doesn't hold because ultimately we're not as different as we think we are. So the movie projects. But here's this thing about the ending of the movie that I, I really was fascinated by and interested in. And this goes back to... I feel like I talked about this in another episode but I don't remember which one. I'm interested in the idea of false flashback or... What happens objectively when we see flashback? Oh, do you know what? Um, it must have been when I talked about um, I mentioned William Castle's homicidal in one of the episodes, uh, I don't remember which one, but William Castle has a couple of instances of this where there's seemingly a flashback, but it's not tethered to a particular. Well, let's not use tether, that's that's confusing. Um, we could use the the term focalized, which I believe comes from "genet," if I, if I haven't fucked that up, if I have, sorry. Um, but the idea of that the perspective of the flashback is important uh, because the perspective gives us whose version of reality it is. Um, Hitchcock has a very famous... I swear I said this in an episode. Well, if you know, that's great. If I don't, I don't. Um, <laughs> but Hitchcock has a really famous instance of what's called a a false flashback which is um, you know when so okay so technically in a, a movie a flashback is using some sort of narrative theory here a flashback is the return of the plot to an earlier moment in the story. The distinction between plot and story in terms of narrative is that plot is what happens in the movie as we encounter it in the sequence that we encounter it right it's the order of events that happen in the movie it is possible that the story which is what we construct as our understanding from the plot that we experience that the story would not be you know in the order that we receive it as plot so if you present the plot in chronological order then the plot and the story are fairly, Seamless, although you might have events that are referred to before the movie began, which would be part of the story, though not in the plot. A flashback, technically, is a return in the plot to an earlier moment in the story. So it's something that happened in the past that we are seeing in the plot of the movie in a time different from when it happened in the logical order of the movie. So, you know, if we see a child being born and the child is an adult in the movie, in terms of the plot of the movie, we see their birth whenever it happens in the movie. Say it's the last scene. But in terms of the story, that's the first event of the story, because that's where the sto- their story began. So flashback is the return of the plot to an earlier moment in the story, and it's seemingly supposed to be an objective... Uh, piece of information. It's not considered focalized, meaning that it's usually not from any character's perspective. We sort of take it to be an objective reference of the film to a real instance that happened. Hitchcock did this thing where he tricked people in stage fright, where he, um, he has what seems like a flashback in the an early part of the movie where one of the characters recounts what happened the night of a murder and the movie flashes back seemingly to the past and as he's telling the story and so we assume that what he says about the night of the murder is true because the film shows it to us we then find out at the end of the movie that he lied that what he said happened didn't happen and the fact that the film corroborated his story visually kind of tricks us into believing that what he's saying is true, whereas what he really was telling us was a focalized narration from his perspective, and it was his imagined perspective, his lying perspective. So what we thought was an objective flashback was really a focalized narration from one character's perspective that was subject to their edit or alteration. What interests me about the ending of Us is that, on the surface, it is a scene in which we seem to have a flashback. We have a shot of young Lupita Nyong'o being switched out, or seemingly switching, you know, the above-ground version of herself. or so the, the above-ground character switches with the tethered version of herself and traps the tether, the above-ground version of herself in the tethered world. Uh, we see that represented visually. What we don't have is any indication of a perspective through which it might be focalized. So we take it, because, because it doesn't seem to belong to anyone, um, we take it as an objective reference that this is what happened and we are seeing this part of the story at this moment in the plot which is the end of the movie but what if what if this (laughs) Uh, just because i like possibility and i like to think through all of the ways something can mean not just one way you could look at that flashback as a flashback and say this is not focalized through any one character it's objective and it is therefore a true flashback. That's what the movie's about. And that plays, right? That plays too. Cause that's okay. The whole, and the whole movie is about a character, the threat of this character being brought down to this, this other world, but really that character's already been there the whole movie. And the whole point of the movie is that, you know, the idea of essential difference is bullshit. The essential difference doesn't exist. What exists is socially constructed difference. That works and that's a great movie, but what if what if what if this? What if you think about that as being focalized through Lupita Nyong'o's perspective? Um, what if it's about her? What if it's about her thinking of her past? Okay, well then it's hers. Maybe it's how she remembers it. Maybe it's subject to her memory. Okay. What if it's Focalized through the perspective of her son. Because in this moment, her son has just seen her snap the neck of Red the Tethered. Um, And he is having to confront for the first time that his mother is capable of something that he didn't imagine she ever was. Uh, The last scene has this seeming flashback and it has shots of the son and shots of the mother, and the son pulls his mask down. Uh, we don't know We don't know if we're supposed to interpret a connection between them in that moment and the flashback that we're seeing in the plot. But it could be a memory of the Piñongo's character, or it could be... Her son, what if it's also another possibility because the whole scene is about the exchange of looks between the mother and the son? What if it's an imagining of the son? It's focalized through his perspective. What if it's a movie about the, th- the the lies we tell ourselves to perpetuate the narrative of essential difference? What if it's about a son who's seen his mother behave in a way that is he thought only was possible of someone who was othered. And he has to narrativize that violence. And what if he imagines for himself the possibility, or considers for himself the possibility, that his mother is not who he thinks she is, metaphorically, but also in this case, because horror gives us this kind of language, literally that she's literally a doppelganger. What if the idea of her being a doppelganger is his? What if it's imagined? What if it's his way of narrativizing that his mother is different or capable of something that someone of her kind should not be capable of? What if it's about the myths we create to perpetuate essential difference? I think that's another meaning. My point being that I think the I think as much as the movie seems on the surface to have something like a twist ending. I've heard people talk about this ending as a twist. I think it's, I think the ending of the movie is not a twist. I think it's a confirmation. I think it's, I I don't think it's designed to be something that changes how we see the movie or what the movie means. I think it is, on the surface level, I think it is an acknowledgement of what the whole movie has been telling us, which is that Lupita Nyong'o's character is really no different above or or below ground, except for the culture in which she was raised and the resources which she was given access to. That's not a twist. That's what the whole movie's been about. So I think people who criticize that as a twist, I think that's sort of missing the point. But what if even more than that, what if it's not a movie about who's above and who's below? What if it's just a movie about... The ways in which possibility is opened under the sort of scrutiny of a reconsideration of the idea of essential difference whether she is or she isn't switched what if the whole climax of the movie is really the arrival at the idea in the mind of a child that something like that is possible which is In that moment, I think for that character, the first questioning of what it means to be or to have or you know to be privileged or not be privileged. It is it is the arrival at quest the questioning of what you think of as essentially true, and that the end of the movie is just about opening up more so than closing off possibility and saying, this is what happened, this is what it is, she was switched, it is, what, if you think of it as focalized to the perspective of the son, and he has the only action that follows the, the flashback. He is the only seeming response, which is like he lowers his mask. Um, what if we think about it as his perspective, and that the whole movie builds toward the opening of the idea of essential difference being slowly demystified in everyone's minds. I think that's also just an interesting way. And there's this one detail that I've I watched the movie twice because I I've, I've thought about it a few times. Uh, she the young Lupita Nyong'o, she has two shirts. She has like a uh, she has a Michael Jackson shirt uh, which is the you know the one that we see her in the first scene. But she also has a Hands Across America shirt. And we seem to see the tethered version of Lupine Young in the flashback. The tethered version putting on a Michael Jackson shirt and a Hands Across America shirt. She seems to take both of those shirts with her. But there's a point of the plot which says that the red who's been living underground has stared at that Hands Across America shirt that she had on her wall Um. For years, and from what we've seen, everything below ground looks different from what's above ground. So the Michael Jackson shirt for the version of Nyong'o's childhood self below ground is like a muddied color splotch. In the you know, it's there's no duplicate. It's sort of always slightly different. But the Hands Across America shirt, I, I watched it twice. She takes one. She takes a real Hands Across America shirt back with her above ground. And yet, somehow, there's still one below ground, and it's never explained how. And so, in my sort of like cockamamie narrative, I like to think of that as like a detail that is inconsistent, that questions the the reality of the flashback as objective, and perhaps suggests something about it being an imagining. And I kind of like I. I like the movie more by giving the ending a lot of potential meanings, more so than trying to think of it as, oh, here is the twist, and this is what it singularly means. Because I can look at that end scene and come up with multiple meanings, it just feels like it expands and it's better for it. So that's my my little bit on us. Um, <laughs> I love the movie. I'm sure people have seen the movie, but that's if you have seen the movie, maybe rewatch it next time and think about some of those things uh, when you watch it. But if you haven't seen Jordan Peele's Us, you should watch. You should watch Us, and and y- yes, please go watch Us. Okay, there's one more movie, um, and I will I will get through it in at a reasonable pace. Uh, this is a movie that not many people have seen, so hopefully um, everyone who is listening will will go check it out. Um, it's a movie called The Wind, directed by Emma Tammy. This is an IFC Midnight movie. It is a supernatural western. It's been compared favorably to The Witch, Robert Eggers' The Witch. Um, it is a period film about a, a kind of uh, neurosis, a sort of historically founded neurosis or paranoia that is given supernatural dimension. Meaning, much like there were lots of folk tales about the witch in early American colonies, like the witch depicts,, you know, the wind picks up on this historical fact that women during um, you know, during the early uh, years of uh, settlement were often left alone uh, in, you know, in a home far removed from any other community. Uh, and would were susceptible to imagining uh, you know bad things amongst the trees or in the air or in the the weeds. And so much like the turn of the screw, which is a kind of a really classic version of this, where it's a question of is this a neurosis or a paranoia or is this something truly supernatural? Uh, the wind picks up on women being left alone to imagine that there are demons on the prairie. Uh, And the women in the movie are handed a pamphlet by a preacher early in the movie, and it has a list of all of the names of all of the demons and what they will do to you. And slowly they start to encounter things that resemble what they read in the pamphlet. And again, the movie has this wonderful tension between uh, is this... Some, is this what happens when you're alone in, in you know, in an, uh, an uninhabited area by yourself? You hear things in the wind, or is this something truly scary that is intending to do harm to the, the characters in the movie? And I think, th- I love that tension. I think it's really interesting. It adds a dimension. Um, it adds a dimension to horror that makes it feel innately psychological whereas it's not just oh there's a scary thing i have to fight it but rather there's something that i am experiencing that i i I question the reality of which feels like i'm always a more interesting proposition because it's not just about getting the bad thing it's trying to assess your own relationship to the bad thing Um, A note for anyone who is going to venture to watch this movie. This is um, another movie that I watched watched and then immediately re-watched on a digital rental. Uh, There are three timelines. So just a heads up, I'm sure everyone who made the movie is like, of course there are three timelines. How could you miss that? But I was thankful that it was a rental because I did rewind at some point because I did get a little confused um, so I'm giving you the, the note. There are three timelines in this movie. There is... Uh, so the basic premise, there's three timelines. I'll explain how they relate to each other and, and how, how they progress the story. So we open with the death of a neighbor, a neighboring woman. Uh, and then we flash back to her arrival. Um, and so there is a present which is after the death of this neighbor woman and uh the main character is left alone by her husband goes into town which is a many days ride and she's left alone and so she's left on the prairie in the aftermath of the seemingly suicidal death of her friend and neighbor because she has no options about friends because there's only so many people (laughs) in this encampment um Uh, And so the main character's name is Lizzie, who's really Caitlin Gerard, is sort of fighting off coyotes and battling her sanity with noises she hears at night in the the present. We also have a parallel interspersed narrative, which is the arrival of the neighbors and the slow progress toward the seeming suicide of the neighbor uh, woman. Uh, which is in the in the past, but then we have an even farther past, <laughs> which is when uh, Lizzie was pregnant with their son, ultimately had a miscarriage, uh, which is which informs some of the nearer past flashbacks. So there are three timelines. Um, you can kind of tell by cinematography. The present stuff is sort of bluish and more horror-driven. There's lots of, like, canted angles and uh, just an overall kind of overcast look. The nearer present is brighter and a little bit more uh, pinky and orangey in terms of color palette. And then the furthest past is most recognizable because she's pregnant, the main character, Lizzie. So whenever she's pregnant, we know she's we're in the furthest past. But just a heads up, because I think... It is a complex structure and it does take a little bit of attention, but I it's so rewarded. This is you know, cinematography, I'll just echo some of the other movies I've talked about, like Braid and The Lighthouse. The cinematography in this movie is so beautiful. It 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 is I'm not joking, it is equal it is equal to the best cinematography of any movie I've seen this year. It it is Every shot looks like golden hour. Like it's just what it's, it's just, it's a, you know, a small house in a field and there's just endless fields and and, and it's grass and sky and there are so many beautifully composed shots and so many beautifully lit shots and everything looks so gorgeous. It has a hell of a last shot. The movie ends on a painfully beautiful shot that I watched and rewatched so many times. Um, it is. It makes the most visually of of its 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 plot. It is. There are these great moments of just. There's a great. There's a great. I'll spoil one kind of moment. There's a great shot of like. Lizzie walking through the field of grass, and then slowly behind her, comes into frame another person, who's possibly dead um, It's there's just like these great choices in terms of composing the frame and, and the way things are lit it it looks the cinematography is like of the highest caliber I can express and it is so visually beautiful that I would sometimes pause it just to look at the frame which you know it's a high compliment if you couldn't read that uh, <laughs> uh, This is, it's just a great movie it is, it's sort of like a demon story but the demon looks like people so there's sort of kind of a ghost story as well and it is ultimately about... The, the main character is really interesting. The performance... Um, Caitlin Gerard, who's the lead actress, the performance is so refreshingly stoic. And she kind of throws away a lot. Like, she doesn't... It is, it is not a screen queen performance. It's a really... You know, really... Uh, it's an even-keeled character who has determination, who is not easily thrown, who's confronting... Scary shit. And I feel like the performance... There's so many choices in that performance that I think are, in a way, counterintuitive because they don't maximize the scare potential. But they're... It, I've watched it three times now. They're they're really great choices because they make the character so interesting and different from what we see in most of these movies. Uh, and, and if you, when you watch them, I won't spoil anything, when you watch the movie, I think it makes even more sense by the end. I think this is a movie that is structured in a way that is sometimes that requires attention and it is paced in a way that's very deliberate because it is about being isolated in you know in a field removed from civilization by yourself and so it has to create that feeling so there is a there is a there is a pace and a structure there's a series of complications here my point is, I'm 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 anticipating some reluctance, on everyone's part, and I'm I'm just confirming as someone who's watched it three times. I just feel like it pays off. I think you just have to. This is a movie that it does not, much like the performance, doesn't welcome you in and make you comfortable, but what it is doing is. I think really sophisticated. I think it is one of truly one of the best horror movies of 2019. And I don't think enough people have seen it. I don't think enough people are talking about it. I don't know why. I honestly don't know why, but um, (sighs) This is a really 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 great movie. So you can find it on digital. Uh, Again, Emma Tammy, The Wind. And that's the last one. So if you made it all the way to the end, uh, bless, this is going to be the longest one, I think, yet. Oh, if you, by the way, if you want to send, um, I did, I reserved a Gmail account. <laughs> so if anyone wants to send me, I, I'm totally nosy about what people like and what people, you know, care about and, and why they like it. So if anyone wants to, does anyone, if anyone, whatever, if anyone wants to send a list of favorites or send a recommendation for a favorite that you had that you think maybe I missed, I did see a hell of a lot, but I'm sure I missed a lot of things too. Uh, If anyone wants to send that, um, I did, I reserved a Gmail, which is just gayforhorror at gmail.com. So you can send, uh, you can send me your top 10 list or you can send me a recommendation if you'd like to. Um, but if you made it all the way to the end of this, um, that's great. Bless your heart. Um, <laughs> thank you for listening. Um, I'm really... 2019 was great for horror. There's so many movies coming out. There's like four horror movies in January. There's one almost every weekend. It's nonstop. It's... I don't even... The, the I don't know if it was always this many or if I just noticed more because it's something I'm paying attention to at this moment. But horror movies in 2020, there's so many and I can't wait for all of them. So I will hopefully do this again next year Uh, but in the meantime i watch all the horror movies you watch all the horror movies in 2020 and i'll watch all the horror movies in 2020 and then we can talk about them in a year from now so if you made it to the end thank you so much and i just have to let you know as i always do that it, it is contagious and we do recruit so you're totally gay now bye